for a building distribution center, a very large one in Oregon. Some of you are familiar with it. It was called ORPAC. You see their trucks running around here sometimes and going into to different hardware stores uh, around town delivering things. And my first task working with them and for them was on a machine that, that had three guys on it. And it was an assembly line for pre-hung doors. And, and the machine would take a door slab, uh, the lumber for, for the frame, some hardware, and put it all together. And my job was to add a couple of the finishing nails at the end, as well as uh, throw some stickers on there and then stack it on a pallet and wrap it for shipping. And shortly after I I started there, uh, there was another man who who was hired and worked across from from me on the machine. And and this man, he was just moved over here from Russia. He knew no English, and I was supposed to train him. And that was challenging because I had to do all of the training with nonverbal communication, not to mention I was fairly new myself. Uh, His name was Sasha. And he was a nice man, and even though we couldn't really communicate with each other other than grunts and and hand gestures and stuff, which unfortunately many men still communicate that way, but we were able to strike up a friendship. And one day at lunch, I, I came out to my car. I often came out to my car for lunch, and I saw Sasha with the hood up on his car that he had just gotten standing over the engine, and he didn't know what to do because the car would not run anymore. It had broken down, and he was new to all of this stuff of, like having a car and driving to work and, and things like that. And, and he was able to figure out there's a blown fuse. And so his solution, uh, even though he didn't know much about it, he understood electrical conduction to a certain extent. And so his solution was to put a nickel in his fuse box there. Now, those of you who know vehicles are already cringing. And thankfully, another guy came out, another coworker, and he stopped and he was like, don't do that. You, your car could catch on fire and burn down. And so we helped Sasha get a new fuse and install a fuse in his car so he could drive home to his family that night. He understood electrical current, but he did not understand how fuses worked and the importance of them. And when it comes to words, one of the biggest struggles I think that we have is we have failed to understand and grasp what our words are for. What our words are for. And yet the Bible frequently tells us this. And so we would be wise to consider it and understand it. Asking questions like, what are our words for? Why has God given us words? What is the purpose of our words? And what we will see is that God has given us our words to reflect Him, glorify Him, and build up other people in love. So, Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 17 because I want us to get the context. We already spent some time in Ephesians 4 when we talked about lying. Uh, This is our last uh, sermon series in this five-week series on the tongue as we've kind of sandwiched this series in between going through the book of Titus all fall and then uh, next week we'll begin the book of John, which we will be in for, for quite some time. But let's, let's pick this up in verse 17, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness 
to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints." Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word, and that you have given us your word that we might know you, that we might know how we can be restored to you, and we might know how we are to live, and we might know how we are to see the end come. And we are grateful for that, Lord. And Father, we ask now that as you, as we uh, unpack your word and, and look at your word, God, we ask that you would be at work through your spirit to drive your word deep into our hearts and transform us, Lord, that we would grow to love you more and love each other better. Would you please accomplish the work you desire to accomplish in our hearts through your word this morning? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we have uh, seen before in Ephesians, Paul is talking about who we are in Christ. He spent chapters 1 through 3 talking about the gospel. This is how we are saved. The transition comes in chapter 4 as he talks about, now this is how you are to live in light of this gospel. And we're, we're seeing this language that we are no longer enslaved to sin. And so we have to put off the old man and put on the new man. Which, by the way, that's one of the big things at the ACBC conference that the focus is on, is how do we do that in exploring different areas of life? How do we put off the old man and put on the new man? Uh, As Paul writes us both here in Ephesians and Colossians, and you'll actually see this language, if you start looking for it, throughout the entire Bible. We are to put off the old man, the sinful things that we were once enslaved to, and put on the things of God. Living in holiness, living in joy, living in peace, righteousness, living for the glory of God. And Paul in Ephesians 4 uses several terms as well into Ephesians 5, such as walking worthy of the calling with which you are called, imitating God, walking in love just as God loved us. 
And note here, as Paul then transitions into the specifics of how, what are the things to put off and what are the things to put on, notice how much speech dominates the text as we get into these things. Speech is a focal point of putting off the old man and putting on the new. And so this morning, we want to explore what that looks like. So, First thing we see here is speak words of grace. Let's look now. We're going to zero in on verse 29 for a little bit. Chapter 4, verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. So this word corrupt here literally means rotting. Something that is rotten and in the process of rotting. Now, one of my least favorite things uh, that I sometimes do in regard to hunting, besides getting up at four in the morning, is preparing a deer or an elk head for a European mount. Now, some of you have done this. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, But this is where uh, when you harvest an animal, you get an animal, and you decide that you want to do a European mount with the the buck or the bull and what you have to do is remove all of the organic matter off of the skull and then once all of that is gone it has to be thoroughly cleaned and then bleached white and that's what a european mount is the problem is i always wait too long because i'm too busy hunting and i'm taking my kids hunting i'm taking my wife hunting and so by the time i get to this head that i have to now clean up unless it's been super cold This head is in a disgusting condition. It's gross. It's rotting. It's stinky. It's gooey. Yeah, that's nice. It's slimy, and it stinks something fierce. And sometimes it's so bad, I literally gag while I do it and commit, I am never going to do this again until the next season, and then I forget and, and do it again. And my girls cherish helping me in those times. They relish the opportunity for a lesson in biology and active bacteria, as well as some quality dad time. But by the time I'm done, the garage stinks, my clothes stink, my hands stink. It takes me days to get the smell off of my hands. It's gross. And that's the idea behind the word that Paul is using here. Corrupt words. They are rotten. And that spreads. Spreading stink all around, negatively impacting those within earshot, negatively impacting those who are the receivers or even the hearers of those words. And Paul says, don't let these rotten words, these stinky, slimy, gooey, nasty things out of your mouth. Don't do it because it spreads rottenness. Now, what are rotten words that we're not to let proceed out of our mouth? Well, we've examined several areas of this over the last four weeks. Uh, Grumbling, complaining, lying, gossiping. But we've only scratched the surface. There's others as well. We'll just read a few. Coarse talk, foolish talk, evil talk, angry words, malicious words, bitter words, hateful talk, disrespectful talk, harsh words, unloving words, hurtful words, prideful words, and we could just go on and on. It seems endless, doesn't it? The amount of corrupt words that proceed out of our mouths, it's endless and overwhelming. 
Now remember, we began this short series with this text from James chapter, uh, this is supposed to be uh, James 3, not 4. The tongue is a fire, James writes, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Do you see how James there is writing just like Paul? It's corrupt. It's rotten. It stains the whole body. It sets on fire the course of life. It's full of deadly poison that's restless. When we lived in California... One of the things we had to sometimes deal with, because we always lived on ranches, was rattlesnakes. And now, I hate snakes, and I fear for the mental stability of those who like to keep them as pets. But I entirely loathe snakes that can bite me and harm me significantly. I loathe poisonous snakes with a deep hatred. And so whenever I encountered one, I killed it. So if you love rattlesnakes, I'm sorry. I have decimated a few in my day with great joy. But... Here's the thing about killing rattlesnakes. Just because they're dead doesn't mean they still can't hurt you. You know, one time, it was early afternoon, and we killed a rattlesnake by taking its head off, and we threw its body on the trailer that we had with us, and late that night, that thing is still writhing and slithering and crawling along on that trailer without a head, hours and hours and hours later. They're nasty, And one has to be extremely careful because even when the snake is beheaded, that head, though completely detached from the body, can still bite you. And it can still inject poison and it can still kill you even though the body is completely gone and there's no activity in the brain. It's dead. Think about that image in connection with James' description. A restless evil full of deadly poison. It's a tongue. Remember, James is writing to Christians. We talked about that when we went through that passage in James. And and through Christ, our tongue is no longer enslaved to sin. It's no longer uh, enslaved to self. It has been crucified with Christ. In a sense, it's been beheaded, but it's still restless. It's still slithering. It's still an evil full of deadly poison, just like a dead rattlesnake. It lashes out. It clamps on a victim. And so as we put off the old man, we are to let no corrupt word come out of our mouth. Corrupt words are destructive. They're a deadly poison in the home and in the workplace and in the church. And we'll be judged for every single one of them. Here's a sobering text for us to consider on this topic indeed. Matthew twelve thirty six. Jesus says, I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Every one. Now, how does that work? I don't know. But Jesus said it, so I believe it. Corrupt, rotten words must be stopped. Lying must be stopped. Angry words must be stopped. 
Complaining, grumbling words must be stopped. Gossiping words must be stopped. But note here, Paul says, it's not enough just to stop that. We have to do something in its place. God has called us to something much richer, much fuller than just stopping doing things. This is very important because so often I think Christians tend to live their life viewing what they don't do what they've stopped doing instead of what they are doing to the glory of God. We're always called to stop and do, to put off and to put on. And so God has called us to start speaking in a way that loves him and loves others. We're to replace these corrupt, rotten words with words that bring good to others and grace. Look again at verse 29. Let no corrupt Word, proceed out of your mouth. So put that off. But what is good for necessary edification? So put on words that are good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Now, what's Paul saying here? Well, as we break this down, we're going to see some significant things. The word good here that Paul uses means useful. It means helpful. It means beneficial. Words that are pleasing to God. But it also points to a purpose for our words, and that is edification. Edification is actually a construction term. It's a term for building, the the Greek word is. it's It's a word that describes building something up from the ground. When I was a a kid, my dad built our house. It was a large two-story house with a full basement. He built a little house for us to live in, so we called that the little house. And then while he was building that, we called the other one the big house. I know, really original. But dad was building the big house, and my dad did everything to build that house. He was an excellent builder. He is an excellent builder. He's still alive. And he, aside from digging the basement and taping and texturing the drywall, he did everything else. The electrical, the plumbing, flooring, framing ceilings, roofs, everything. He did it all. And I watched that house. It took seven years for my dad to build it. I watched him build it from the ground up. And my dad was very consistent to use good materials. He was very intentional about what he used. He did not try to build the walls with sticks or insulate with grass or or use uh, shredded tires for flooring or, or to use balloons for light covers. No, he was very intentional to use good materials. And he did a lot of research on the best materials at the time to use in order to build the house. And likewise, our words here, Paul is saying, are to be appropriate and purposeful for a specific task. That task is building people up. Our words are to be useful and helpful and beneficial and purposeful to edify people and build people up in Christ. And so you could think of it this way, our words are to be the building material our words are to be the building materials to edify people, to build up people in Christ. Friends, God has ordained that to be the primary purpose or one of the primary purposes of your words. In fact, there's an emphasis here in the language that the negative is implied that there should be no words that detract from this. None. Every word should be helpful and beneficial and useful. Why in building a house would you use some materials that have no bearing whatsoever to building it but tearing it down? 
Brian Chappell stated this about this passage that I think is helpful. The apostle's standard is that if it does not build up and benefit, then it is not worthy to be said. We are commanded to build up and to edify one another in Christ. To use our words to build people up in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Paul writing to the Thessalonian church said, Therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. The first, here's our challenge, I think. Uh, The first recipients of these words that build up and edify should start in the home. It should start with our spouse and then with our children. But secondly, we see here Paul writing in Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Impart grace. The word impart means to give. And so we are to give with our words. What are we to give with our words? We are to give grace. Grace refers to being gracious. And words carrying an attractiveness to them. They are words of goodwill, purpose. Words by which God's grace flows from our mouths to the ears of others who are made in the image of God. We see an example of speech like this from Luke 4, the same, same word here. Luke 4, 21 through 22, speaking of Jesus. And he, Jesus, began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Friends, would people say that about you? Man, that person's words are gracious. They have gracious words. Are your words attractive? Are they filled with grace? You know, it's interesting. As we step back from this verse and and look at it, we realize something very significant that I don't think we think about nearly enough. Our words are not for us. They're for the well-being of others, not ourselves. In other words, our words are to flow not from love for self, but for a love for others. And if we're honest, so much of what we speak actually are flowing from a love for self, and sometimes we disguise it as a love for others, but really our words are a love for self so often. When you're complaining about your wife and her failure in a certain area, who are you really concerned about? yourself they haven't measured up to you when you're distorting the truth just a little bit what's your focus it's self when you're speaking an angry word to your child what's your focus certainly not grace and building them up no it's self i think our words are far more self-centered and selfish than we realize Consider this passage from Romans 15, verses 2 through 3. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. 
Our words are to be useful to build others up in Christ, imparting grace to them. And so if we're going to have, if we're going to live like Christ, we're going to have to not please ourselves, but please Christ through genuinely loving others. Our words are to impart God's grace to others. So a great question for you to ask, what is the best way for my words to accomplish God's goal of edification and grace? What is the best way for my words to accomplish God's goal of edification and grace? Man, when you get into a conversation and you can feel the emotions building, just stop yourself. Ask that question. It should be at the forefront of our mind. In Proverbs 15, 28, the heart of the righteous studies how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours forth evil. Why do the righteous study how to answer? Why is that necessary? Well, it's actually answered earlier in the chapter. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. It's a powerful proverb. And it forces us to ask, have to ask the question, is our tongue bringing life to people? Or is it breaking their spirit? Is it bringing life? Or is it breaking their spirit? You see, if we're going to put off the old man and put on the new man, we're going to have to wrestle deeply with our words. John Stott wrote this. He said, if we are truly a new creation of God, we shall undoubtedly develop new standards of conversation. Instead of hurting people with our words, we shall want to use them to help, encourage, cheer, comfort, and stimulate them. Words. Tree of life or breaking the spirit. Well, the next thing we're going to see here, let's jump down to verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. Notice here the the transition in in verse 30 talking about speech we can grieve the spirit of god when we use our words wrongly and then he tells us more words to put off and then verse 32 be kind tender-hearted forgiving even as god in christ forgave you so the second thing we see here the second point on your outline is speak words of christ Supposed to be an S in there. So speak words of grace. Speak words of Christ. These verses are all in the context of speech. Our words should be kind. They should be tender-hearted. They should be forgiving. They should flow from the love that we receive from Christ. 
And so first of all, as we kind of unpack some of these words here, if we're going to speak the words of Christ, our words will be kind. Kind. Interestingly, at the heart of this word is the description of easy to wear. Easy to wear. Now, my favorite clothing, aside from my Speedo in the summer, is a hood. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Never worn one in my life, and you don't want to see that image. Uh, my favorite clothing is a hooded sweatshirt. If I'm not here at church, unless it's summertime, if I'm not here in church, you're probably going to see me in a hoodie. I love hoodies. They're easy to wear. They're comfortable to me. I like them. They serve as coats. They're easy to wear. And likewise, our words should be easy to wear for those around us. Easy to wear. That's what this word means. Kind. And in the context here of language, it means easy to wear, gracious, good, benevolent, pleasant. And when people are around you, they should feel at ease. They should feel blessed. And so often, though, the opposite happens. People around us might feel tense. Like they're being tested. Like they can't measure up. Like they're not good enough. Downhearted. Our words can make people feel frustrated. Exhausted. (laughs) Run over. And the list goes on and on. What we're being told here is to seek to be one whose words are pleasant. Easy to wear. Kind. You see, God showers us with kindness, incomprehensible kindness. And our response must be kindness to others. And note this, whenever our words are not kind, we are either forgetting or neglecting or underestimating the kindness of God to us. When our words are not kind, we are forgetting, neglecting, or underestimating God's kindness towards us. But secondly, Paul says here, tender-hearted. If we're going to speak the words of Christ, our words will be tender-hearted. To be tender-hearted, what this word means is to be compassionate, to have deep love for others and a desire to bless others. It's being good-hearted towards others. It's seeing the good in other people instead of the negative in other people. It means to focus on the good in people. And it's so easy to focus on the shortcomings of people and get so caught up in that. But one who is tender-hearted does not do that because they look on people with the compassion God has for them. We see a great example of this in passage that Brooke read earlier from 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 10. Finally, all of you, be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. See how language is tied up in that? You can't claim to be a tender-hearted, compassionate person while your words are causing harm. But notice this. Instead of all of this evil talk, it says to be a blessing. Be a blessing in the lives of others. And then notice the byproduct. It's a passage with promise that you may inherit a blessing and live a good life. 
Now, thirdly, if we're going to speak the words of Christ, we see here in verse 32, our words will be forgiving words. In context here, the word forgiving means to be showing favor towards others. It's to look over wrongs and to pardon people. And and rather than dwell on the wrongs against us, we dwell on showing favor towards others because Christ has shown favor towards us. And this is difficult for us, and that's why Paul says right here, look at the gospel. As God in Christ, he says, forgave you. In order to live like this, you have to keep your eyes on Christ. And when we're not being kind and we're not being tenderhearted and we're not being forgiven, it is because we have turned our eyes off of Christ. We have turned our eyes off of God. And so he says, even as God in Christ forgiven you. Why? Because God, listen, this is very important. I've said this before. God has forgiven you for far more sin against him than anyone in the whole wide world would ever sin against you if they lived a hundred lifetimes. You have sinned far more against God than anyone has sinned against you. Remember the parable of the unforgiving servant from Matthew 18? The master forgives his servant of a massive debt. Jesus is telling this parable. And the amount of money that the master forgives his servant for is more money than could be earned in a lifetime. And the servant is forgiven. He's relieved. He's overjoyed. And he leaves there. And then if you remember right, what happens? A servant comes to him who had wronged him and owed a debt to him. And it was small. Significant, but it was small compared to the other one. And what did that servant who had been forgiven by his master do? Grabbed him by the throat and said, you pay back right now. And Jesus is telling that parable as an example of how we have been forgiven so much. And yet when someone wrongs us, we grab them by the throat. You better make this right. And when the master found out about it, he's enraged. We read the conclusion of this parable. And his master was angry and delivered him, the servant, to the torturers until he could pay, should pay all that was due to him, which, remember, was more than one could earn in a lifetime. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother. See, one who truly understands the gospel and truly understands forgiveness and what they have been forgiven for is one who speaks with kind words, tender words, forgiving words. But then finally, if we're to speak the words of Christ, our words will be loving words. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. We are to walk in love. Love. Reminds me of 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. 
Paul is talking here about the kind of speech that is deemed to be amazing, incredible, great. He's a great speaker. Or he's got this gift with tongues. He's an amazing with his mouth and his words. And yet Paul writes here, incredible words, incredible speech. Without love, it's like a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. What are those words like? They're loud. They're obnoxious. They're annoying. And they're exhausting. Ugh, exhausting. And so, we need to ask ourselves the question, are your words focused on building others up in Christ? Are your words focused on imparting grace to people? Are your words kind? Are they tender-hearted? Are they forgiving? Are they loving words? But not only that, as we're going to see here in a minute, we're not let off the hook with just that. Is your tone, attitude, and posture in line with those things? So often it isn't that our words are bad, but our tone and our posture is poisoned. We need to be careful. So how do we do this? What do we do from here? What do we do with all of this? Well, let's look at some practical things here. Put on godly speech. How do we put on godly speech? I'll be honest, much uh, insight has been gleaned for me on this issue from Paul Tripp's book, The War of Words. It's an excellent book on, on speech and on having words that glorify God. I highly recommend it. I'm actually going to quote him a few times here in these final few minutes. Uh, it's been a very helpful book for me in understanding how do we put these things off and put these things on. Uh, so let me, let me give you some, some things here to think through. First of all, see God as the owner of our words. Your words are not your own. How do we know that? Well, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 12. Everyone will give an account for every idle word they speak. Why? Because your words are not your own. They are God's. Consider 1 Corinthians 6 also, verses 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You are not your own, and that includes your words. They're not yours. They're not mine. They're God's. I think Paul Tripp is helpful here as he says this. Many of the problems we experience when talking with one another emerge from the fact that we have usurped the authority of God. We say what we want to say, when and how we want to say it. We speak as if we are in charge and as if we have the right to use words to advance our purpose and to achieve what would make us happy. We speak as if we were God rather than his creatures who are called to submit to his authority in every idle word we speak. Our words are not our own. But so often, we function as if we own them. Secondly, we need to see Jesus dying for our words. This is very important. I I spoke of this a little bit earlier. We are no longer enslaved to evil speech. Christ has set us free from this. He has, in a sense, cut the head off the snake, remember? Jesus died on the cross 
as our representative for our sin. He paid the price. He took the wrath of God upon him to represent us, to make us clean, that we might stand before God. And this includes our speech. This is very important to see. Because where is the hope for you in your tongue? That is, as James wrote, a restless evil full of deadly poison. Your hope is in Christ. (laughs) Not in communication skills. That's very, very low on the priority scale. Christ is our hope. Christ has set us free from our tongue to speak words that are uplifting, to glorify him and build others up. And not only that, he has given us his spirit to war against evil words coming from our mouths. The third thing we need to recognize here is rest in God's sovereignty. Now you may ask, what in the world does resting in God's sovereignty have to do with your words? With my words? Well, just think about this. How many times our sinful words are coming because we do, in that moment, not rest in God's sovereignty. We do not trust that he is in control. We do not, in that moment, believe that he is working all things for good to those who are the called according to his purpose. Let me give you an example. A month ago, I got home after a long and difficult day at church. It was a, one of those hard days, stressful days. And then I, I don't even remember what all was going on. Something happened as I was driving home, a, a phone call or a text or something like that. I was kind of overwhelmed, just struggling that day as I drove home. I, I pulled into the driveway, got out of my excursion, and uh, smelled burning brakes. And I thought, that's not good. And a quick examination realized that the caliper had seized on the one side of my truck and was burning up the brakes as I was driving home. And when I walked into the house, I was angry, not at my family, but at just the day and the pulling in and smelling the burning brakes was just like the icing on the cake. You all know what that's like. You've been there. And my words, guess what, were not very pleasing to the Lord. They were first angry words and then complaining words. Now, what does God's sovereignty have to do with that? Well, I was not resting in God's sovereignty and seeing his plan for me as good. God in his sovereignty decided that one more little trial was good for me that day. And I said to God, that is not good for me right now. (laughs) Bad plan, God. And my words express that. You see, so often the corrupt words that proceed out of our mouth are because we may intellectually say I believe in God's sovereignty, but functionally, we're not believing it at that moment. Next thing we need to consider here. Know who you represent. Know who you represent. What do I mean by that? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You are an ambassador for Christ if you're trusting in Christ. And guess what? An ambassador has to remember they are also representing who they were sent from with their words. So do your words more often represent your agenda or Christ's agenda? Because you're an ambassador for Christ. 
Paul Tripp says this on this topic. He says, an ambassador is called not only to say what the king would say, but to say it, note this, in the way he would say it. In the way he would say it. We are not free to accomplish God's mission any way we see fit. The way we do what we are called to do must be consistent with his character and purposes. Our method of speaking should reflect the way God deals with his people. I don't know about you, but that's sobering to me. My words should reflect the way God and Christ deal with his people. That's sobering. Fifth thing. How do we put off corrupt words, put on edifying words? We labor in heart work. We labor in heart work. Why is it that so much of putting off the old man and putting on the new man is connected with speech? Why is it that there are so many passages that refer to speech and the use of our tongue? Well, the answer is this. Your mouth, if you can bear with my redneck analogy, your mouth is the exhaust pipe of your heart. It's the exhaust pipe of your heart. If you drive behind somebody and their exhaust is blowing out blue smoke, you know that boy's got something wrong with his engine. It's burning oil. Your mouth is an exhaust of your heart. You can only communicate what's there in your heart. Jesus confirms this. He teaches us this. This comes from Christ. Luke 6.45, A good man out of the treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. Note this, out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Now we've looked at that passage several times over these last five weeks, but let that sink in once more. Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. What's in your heart comes out your mouth. It's the exhaust pipe of your heart. It's not that you need better communication skills. So many Christians think that that's like what they need. No, it's not what they need. It's not that they need better circumstances. It's not that they need their spouse to act a different way or their children to act a different way. No, no. Nothing and no one can make you sin. You do it because you are responding to what's in your heart. Every sinful word we speak is revealing a deficiency in our love for God and our love for others. Every sinful word we speak revealing a deficiency in our love for God and our love for others. Well, sixth, seek forgiveness for your sinful words. I mean this in two parts. Seek forgiveness for your sinful words. First, Confess your sin to God. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess our sins to God first. And then secondly, confess your sin to those who received your sinful words or heard your sinful words. Consider what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. 
Now notice, in this verse, what Jesus is not talking about is going and confronting someone. Sometimes this text is misused that way. I need to go confront them. It's actually not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you need to go ask for forgiveness because your brother has something against you, meaning you are the one that wronged them. Go ask for forgiveness. I don't know about you, but there's no area in my life that I have to ask forgiveness for from my family more than my words. There just, there isn't. Not long ago, I sinned against one of my daughters because I spoke harshly to her. Now, she needed a little bit of correction. That wasn't the issue. And the words themselves that I said to her were not in and of themselves sinful, but the way that I said them to her were. It was one of those great dad moments where she walks to her room crying, and I'm sitting there angry, and I have to make a choice in that moment. Am I going to live for myself, pleasing myself, which means justifying myself, saying that she's too sensitive, she should have been hearing better, or am I going to die to myself, love my daughter, and ask for her forgiveness? So I took the walk of shame down the hallway that many of you have had to take as well and ask for forgiveness, which, by the way, means asking for forgiveness, not saying, I'm sorry. But saying, will you please forgive me? I think here are Proverbs 28, 13. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Built into that proverb, by the way, is repentance forsakes. means you turn away from it. Here's another big one. How do we put off these corrupt words? Put on corrupt words. Limit your words. Limit your words. The more you talk, the more you sin. It's just the way it is. We talked about this before. When somebody says to me, I have the gift of gab in my mind, I think, okay, so you just told me you sin a lot. Take a mental note in your conversations. Just as you're standing there talking to someone, make a note. Think. Am I doing most of the talking? When was the last time I asked this person a question and actually listened to what they said? Have I even asked any questions? I've noticed in our culture, this is quickly becoming a lost art. People don't ask questions anymore. They just talk or they shut up. Ask questions. There's multitude passages speaking to the need to talk less and listen more consider proverbs 17 27 through 28 he who has knowledge spares his words and a man of understanding is of a calm spirit i love this one even a fool is counted wise if he holds his peace when he shuts his lips he's considered perceptive (laughs) that man's an idiot but he shut his lips right there so he's got a little bit of perception some of us need to take that to heart. Or Proverbs ten nineteen, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. But he who restrains his, restrains his lips is wise. Likewise, James 1, 19 through 20. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. Note this. Slow to do what? Speak. Slow to speak. Slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
Well, lastly, how do we put off corrupt speech? How do we put on speech that builds up and edifies? We love God and we love others. The more we grow in our love for God and our love for others, the more our words will impart grace. The more they will build up others in Christ. The more they will be kind words, tender-hearted words, forgiving words, loving words. Your heart's growing in these things. Your words will follow suit. Bear with me as I quote Paul Tripp one more time talking about this. He says, words that are spoken up to God's standard and according to his design always begin with a heart that loves God above all else and therefore desires to speak in a loving way to one's neighbor. How do you have words that build up and edify and impart grace, grow in your love for God, grow in your love for others? You can't conjure up godly speech. Too many Christians are trying to conjure up godly speech. No, grow in loving God and loving others, and your speech is going to follow that trail. So as we come to the end of this series on the tongue, may we be challenged, may we be encouraged, may we be challenged as we see all the damage that our tongues can cause. But also, may we be encouraged to see the good it can do when we use it as God designed it to be used. Consider two Proverbs. Proverbs 15.4, A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. And Proverbs 25.11, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. A word fitly spoken. Apples of gold. Use your tongue. Use your words as God created it to be used. Imparting grace, building one another up. Seek to be one who has a wholesome tongue, as Proverbs 15.4 says, that's a tree of life. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for your word that is very clear and cuts us to the heart where we need to be cut. And yet every wound you give us from your word is ultimately meant for our healing and growth that we would love you more and love others better. And so, Father, maybe we've been cut a little this morning from your word, but might we also see the grace there from you, your kindness towards us, and that as you reveal our sin to us, it is not that we would be shamed or wallowing guilt or despair, but rather that we would hand that to you, confessing our sin to you and to others who we've sinned against and finding healing and forgiveness from you and others, that we might have joy, deep joy that doesn't come because our circumstances are finally the way we want them, but deep joy because we know you are God and we know that you love us and we know that everything that comes to us comes from your sovereign hand for our good and for your glory. And so, Father, we praise you for this truth. And in the midst of all of this, we praise you for Christ. For you sent Jesus to die for our sin 
And that includes the sin of our tongue. We're no longer enslaved to our sin. The poisonous snake that is our tongue has been beheaded. It's still dangerous, but we're not enslaved to it. And we can have a tongue that actually can be described as having a tree of life. Being a tree of life. What an amazing thing that is. So, Father, would you please help us? May our words be ones that bring life and not crush the spirit, as Proverbs 15.4 says. Help us in these things. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.